It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. One thing that I've been really meditating on lately in the context of my relationships, not just my current romantic relationship, but my business relationships, friendships, all human relationships, is I'm just going to dive right into an uncomfortable subject for me, which is boundaries. And the reason that boundaries are a little bit uncomfortable when I really sit with them is because I feel like sometimes it's important for me to set boundaries so that I can communicate with people to state my preferences, you know, my likes, my dislikes, how I want to be treated or prefer to be treated. But I've noticed that sifting through a lot of the advice online and the memes and the videos talking about boundaries, it seems like that's a hot subject that people are talking about is boundaries that I think I've also started to identify that I've used boundaries as a way to keep people at bay or maybe keep them a little bit distant, sort of like if I set a boundary and you don't respect that boundary, that's my reason to like, you know, push you a little bit out of my life a little bit or keep you at arm's length. So I want to just jump right into a, a hella deep subject, a very complex, I think, and layered subject with both of you, Whitney and our guest Shannon today, of this subject of boundaries. And when I bring up boundaries, what does that engender for both of you? How do you feel about boundaries? How do you employ them in your life? Let's just jump right in the deep end without the floaties and talk about boundaries. Can we do that? Let's go. Let's go. Let's talk about boundaries. I feel like boundaries is a buzzword for sure. You see it everywhere. I don't think that you are alone in your struggle with finding that like sweet spot where you're asking for respect, you're giving respect, but you're not just slamming the door on people when it feels like they're maybe pushing you in a way that you're not comfortable with. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, right? Because... <laughs> I feel like, Whitney, this has actually even come up in our friendship now, which is coming up on almost nine years now, is that there's moments in our business partnership and our friendship, and even when we dated many years ago, that you know there were conversations around around boundaries, right? It's like, I feel like that's something that's been been something you and I have dealt with. Would you agree? I mean, that, that's come up in our relationship over the years. For sure. I think that I continually, wait, how do I say this? Continuously, <laughs> continuously reflecting on things like boundaries, especially over the past few years. And I was having a discussion with a friend today. So there is a gap between the date that we recorded this episode and the date that it comes out. And in between that time, I will have gone on a cross country road trip with a friend of mine who we have never spent that much time together. We're going to go on like a seven to 10 day road trip. And by the time this episode comes out, it'll be complete. And we're doing a whole podcast episode on that. It's going to be so interesting to me. But one thing we were discussing as we plan this trip in August is boundaries. And I asked her, what do you think could possibly make this trip difficult for us as friends. Like I found myself wanting to understand the boundaries that she has as well as like maybe how the dynamics are with other friends and anticipate it. And it was such a wonderful conversation because we ended up talking about boundaries and she said that she has discovered that in her friendships and in her romantic relationships 
that boundaries are often the root of a lot of pain. Have you found that as well, Shannon, in your work? Or are boundaries like one of the big kind of make or break things or one of the big points of tension in any of our relationships, whether it's family, friends, or romantic partners? You hit the nail on the head with that, really. I feel like there's not a client that I've worked with yet that hasn't had to do some work around boundaries. And, you know, the way we show up in one area of our life tends to be the way that we are everywhere. So when we have poor personal boundaries in our dating relationship or with our family members or with our friends, we tend to see them in our relationships with our like professional relationships with our clients. It tends to be something that shows up all over the place. And, you know, when people think boundaries, they, I think, think lack of boundaries, but there can be overly rigid boundaries that are just as problematic and can cause, you know, huge problems pretty much all over the board in relationship. You know, whether you're overly flexible or too rigid, either way is not necessarily healthy or conducive to good relationships. That's super interesting to me because I, again, in kind of the cultural lexicon, seeing a lack of boundaries or you need more boundaries or like, girl, you need to set some boundaries with this man. I haven't seen so much information of what you touched on, Shannon, which was having too rigid or too strict boundaries. Can you dive a little bit deeper into that? Because I'm so curious. I haven't read much on that. And also, you know, what are I suppose some general examples of maybe, you know, some rigid boundaries or, or ones that, and also what's the danger of having too rigid of boundaries in a relationship context, particularly romantic? So it's funny because as you were talking about your personal experience with boundaries, that was immediately kind of what popped into my head was that like leaning more into the overly rigid boundaries. So And you're right, we don't hear that as often. We do hear people talking a lot about, oh, you need to set that boundary. But what we don't really understand is that sometimes, and usually overly rigid boundaries come from a place of fear. So when someone has overly rigid boundaries, whether it's personally, professionally, both, it comes from this almost knee-jerk reaction or fear that we're going to be taken advantage of. And what's interesting is people often swing from one extreme to the other. So they might at one point have overly flexible boundaries and then just get to the point where they're like, oh my God, I can't, like, this is the worst, like living this way. And so then they swing to the other extreme and then they slap those really rigid boundaries in place. And so the the problem with that is it, cuts off intimacy, right? Because like people who have really, really rigid boundaries tend to, like you mentioned earlier, not to kind of put you on the spot, Jason, but you had mentioned like pushing people away a little bit if they, you know, don't respect your boundary or, and so that's kind of where we see the boundaries being overly rigid, where it's not just this expectation that I want you to respect me. I want you to treat me in this certain way but it becomes almost this wall that we hide behind. And so if you think about it from that perspective, you can see where in a personal or a romantic relationship that can cause cause issues like you know difficulty with intimacy, like letting I mean a relationship, a romantic relationship at its core should be around trust, intimacy, openness. 
but those rigid boundaries, if they are really like walls meant to protect us, that doesn't allow us then to bring people close to us and have that trust and that open relationship. It's a tough thing a little bit, right? And I also want to throw this into the ballpark with you, Whitney, as well, get your perspective on this next point is, I feel like maybe I'm a little bit murky in my mind on the difference between, say, a boundary and a strong preference. You know, like in a romantic relationship, if there's a way of being with my partner or a lifestyle trait she has or a way that she's continually showing up, I'm wondering how you both feel about when I say the difference between like a boundary and a preference, what that brings up. Because I think sometimes I have trouble discerning between those two for myself. Yeah, I think I do as well. I'm actually, to go back to your original point, Jason, thinking about when you and I have struggled with boundaries, whether it was personally or professionally, this has come up for me a lot in my life. And I remember at one point years ago, it was probably in 2016. Yeah, it was because I think that boundaries were a huge reason why one of my friendships dissolved. And that was in fall 2016. And I had this really good friend who confronted me about how I wasn't respecting her boundaries. And I remember I was trying to communicate to her that I didn't know what her boundaries were. And simultaneously, I was trying to let her know and better understand myself why I was struggling with that, why I had a tendency to cross boundaries. And it gave me a lot to reflect upon. I realized that I do struggle with that. And if somebody isn't completely clear with me, I am a button pusher, as some people like to refer to me as. I will push the boundaries. It's part of, I think, how I learn to operate in the world and maybe modeling my mother, who's also a boundary pusher, for better or for worse. You know, I've seen my mom push people away through that boundary pushing. Like, you know, she's literally pushing boundaries as well as pushing people away. And I think that can happen with our boundaries sometimes when we cross them. And then on the positive end, a lot of the times that my mom has pushed boundaries, it led to her achieving things that other people might not have achieved had they not been willing to color outside the lines, right? So I've observed the pros and the cons. The trouble is, though, because I associated boundary pushing as very rewarding, I started to have trouble recognizing when it wasn't good to push boundaries. And so for someone like you, Jason, you strike me, even though you're rebellious, you are also very rigid in your boundaries, as Shannon was describing. And so I think that's when you and I have struggled. For me, like I'm a why person, I'm a questioner. So that pushes some people's boundaries. They don't like to for somebody to ask them why all the time. You know, like I want to know the answers why to everything. And sometimes when I ask that question, people feel very uncomfortable. They're like, I don't want to tell you why. That's against my boundary. So I've really been trying to learn how to operate without limiting myself, I suppose. I think that that makes some interesting points about Whitney, you had said that you kind of equate pushing boundaries with like making breakthroughs or achievement, you know, because you have watched your mom do that. And we learn these things because somebody modeled the behaviors for us usually. But I think it's important to kind of remember that 
there's a difference between pushing like your own boundaries and your own beliefs and pushing someone else's boundary because you can push yourself to do things that maybe you would normally like feel uncomfortable doing to reach a new level or you know a level of success that maybe you hadn't but it's different to push someone else's boundary in a way that makes them uncomfortable or doesn't respect their values. So I think you can be a boundary pusher and you can be successful and you can push yourself without kind of walking all over other people's kind of line in the sand. And and I think it can be really hard to figure out, like, is this a boundary? Is this a place where I should compromise, especially in romantic relationships? Because I think anybody that's ever had a successful relationship knows that there has to be compromise. But I like to think of boundaries as kind of our deal breakers. Like, what are the things that we absolutely need in our relationships, whether they're personal or professional, so that we can feel safe, so that we can feel respected. So, you know, a boundary might be something like a hard line that you have with a partner, like, you know, texting or doing something that you have to hide from me. Like that's a hard boundary, right? Like there's no gray on that. Where a preference is something that you might bend a little bit to meet your partner in the middle. It doesn't violate your core belief system. It doesn't disrespect you. It's more something that you have to kind of come together to work out so that you can find that middle ground where you're both getting your needs met, are healthy and happy. I appreciate you giving that distinction, Shannon, in, in your work of, you know, the boundary versus a preference. It's interesting because I feel like, to use a very direct example from my current relationship, my girlfriend Laura and I, we have really great communication. I feel like our communication evolves and, and we have more discussion on boundaries and preferences. And and early on, I was kind of a little bit reticent to share this one with her. Uh, when we first started dating, she was smoking cigarettes. And I wanted to communicate my boundary to her and why it was important for me to communicate my, I suppose, extreme discomfort with that. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, it smells bad. You need to stop smoking. For me, it was a deeper layer of you know, a history of cancer in my family and certain smokers in my family and seeing what they've gone through. And once I think I communicated to her that the reason I had this boundary of not wanting to date someone who was a smoker was because, you know, I had this deep level of concern, you know, like if you do this thing that I know is harming your body, I'm going to worry about you. It's really going to cause me anxiety and worry knowing that you're doing this to yourself. And I guess it was a little bit tricky though, right? Because on the one hand, I want her to have her, I'm not going to tell her what to do and I don't want her to stop for me necessarily, but it's also this thing of like, man, I really don't want to date someone who's a smoker and here's why. You know, it's like, I'm concerned about your health. I'm concerned you're shortening your lifespan. I'm going to be worried about you. But I think I was a little bit hesitant to communicate that because I didn't want her to think that I was trying to control her, if that makes sense. So it took me a while to, I guess, find the right way to communicate that. But I was actually... I was glad that she received it in a sense that she didn't perceive it like I was trying to control or manipulate her behavior once I explained why it was concerning to me. And I think so far, you know, that 
learning how to communicate effectively has been a challenge for me in romantic relationships, but I feel like I'm getting better at it. (laughs) You know, what I think is interesting about that and communication is, I think, always an evolving skill too, for sure that, you know, we learn over time. And, you know, as we spend more time in a relationship with someone and we get more comfortable and we feel safer, communication tends to improve. But one of the things that I think is interesting about that particular example that you use, Jason, is that for very good reason, you're uncomfortable dating somebody that smokes, right? Because you, you know, don't want to essentially love someone who is potentially putting their body at risk and, you know, then potentially losing, maybe even losing someone that you love because of that health concern. But at the same time, I'm kind of surprised if that is a boundary for you that you would start a relationship with somebody knowing that they're a smoker. Yeah, that's, it is an interesting thing you bring that up, right? Because it's one of those like things in the past that I said, I'm never going to do that. And I think in a way I want, I felt such a really magnetic, powerful energy with her, you know, that really unique magnetic connection. And I thought, even though she's a smoker at the time, she's not anymore, but it was almost like, I want to see what's here, even though there's a massive boundary for me and it's concerning. I want to get to know her and I want to see more of what's here. And that was different. And, and, you know, Whitney's known me for, we've known each other nine years, Whitney. We've seen each other date a lot of people. And was that surprising for you as well? Would you have expected me, Whitney, just to be like, nah, I'm done? And I I also had concerns in the beginning. I communicated those to you. But I guess in in essence, I'm happy I stuck in there because she's shown me layers of her evolving and growing and changing in the time that we've dated. And not because I have made ultimatums with her, never done that. But I don't know. I guess, Shannon, my answer is like, initially, I was really concerned about it, but I chose to move forward and explore her because I felt like there was, I don't know, a deeper connection, a deeper magnetism I wanted to explore. I think that it's great that you're doing that, Jason. And I believe I encouraged you to do that because it's interesting how we each have different perspectives on these things. Like, I don't smoke cigarettes and I don't know if I've ever dated anybody that has So I could see how that might be an unpleasant thing. It's not only could it be like breath or smell, but then there's the health concerns, right, which are important to you. But I remember thinking like it doesn't feel like a deal breaker to me because that seems like something that could be shifted if this person's willing to shift it, but also kind of on the minimal side of your preferences, Jason, it kind of sounds like it's a pretty strong preference for you. So I guess it's kind of, it's interesting when we start to examine like what our deal breakers are and what our boundaries are and do those shift over time? And are we willing to compromise on some things because of other people? And me being very fluid and willing to change my mind a lot, I guess when I saw this dynamic unfolding with Laura, The smoking just didn't seem to be that big of an issue. And it sounds like it has shifted for you over time, Jason. Yeah, it has. And it also makes me curious, Shannon, with your work and everything we're talking about, you know, what's the nuance with maybe observing a deal breaker, but if a person is open and willing to shift it and change it, you know, what are the nuances in that type of interaction, in particular, talking about romantic relationships? You know, maybe we see something where we're like, oh boy, I don't know if that's going to work. 
But if the person is genuinely willing to shift or evolve or change, you know, I guess how much rope or leeway do we give people with that? Well, a lot of the work that I actually do is with women who give a little too much rope, if I'm being honest, which is why I kind of pointed out that kind of, you know, where you have that boundary, but yet you made that decision to date that person because what I see a lot. And this comes from a few different places, to be honest. But what I see a lot is women that, so they either go into these relationships kind of knowing on the front end there's something that they don't, they're not comfortable with, but hoping that either A, that it will change, or B, with this scarcity mindset of, I don't really like this, but I don't feel confident that I deserve better. And so it's a slippery slope, right? Because the reality is that nobody changes unless they change for themselves. Like I can tell you, well, I used to be a smoker. I am no longer a smoker, but I tried to quit several times and it wasn't until I did it because I was good and darn ready to do it that it stuck. Like it wasn't because my husband loved me and was worried about me. None of that mattered. I had to want it. So when we go into a relationship hoping that someone is going to change something about themselves to make us comfortable or make us happy or to fit into or to really for me, as you were talking about it, it's a core values kind of thing, right? Like to go back to that smoking example for you, Jason, it's really a core value for you because not because of the smell or anything surface level like that, but because you have had a personal experience, it sounds like with, you know, people that you cared about having, you know, getting sick, experiencing cancer, you've seen the devastation that smoking can cause. So it's not just a preference at that point. It's really a core value. And when we don't honor our core values in our romantic relationships, there can be, sometimes it works out. It sounds like in your relationship, it is working out, which is amazing, but it's kind of a crapshoot. You're rolling the dice. Like what if you went into that relationship because you felt that connection and she really just loved to smoke and loved it enough that she was like, "Eh, I hear you, but I don't want to quit, you know? So it's one of the things that I work with women on because, like I said, a lot of that kind of belief, I don't believe in your situation, this is where it came from. But for a lot of women, we have these limiting beliefs about what we deserve in a relationship. Do we deserve to have the things that we want to be treated the way that we want? And we don't feel comfortable, you know, drawing a line in the sand or really honoring our core values. That also makes me wonder about how self-sabotage plays a role in these things, you know? And it's kind of interesting on this specific subject matter about smoking, for example, because I wonder, does somebody smoke as a form of self-sabotage? Is it because it's addicting and maybe they start innocently and then they can't stop or they don't know how to stop or they don't have the motivations to stop? Do they continue doing something even when they know it's not great for their body? But then I also think about the opposite side. And I think part of the reason that I was encouraging Jason to continue to give Laura a chance, despite this drawback, was that I wondered if he was self-sabotaging by finding traits about her 
that weren't that big of a deal. And again, like that was my perspective that they weren't that big of a deal. I have different boundaries and core values in that sense. But that was ultimately my question to you, Jason, which was, are you trying to sabotage this relationship by looking for something wrong with her? Well, this brings up an interesting, I guess, tangent of this conversation, which is my idealistic approach. I've joked in previous episodes about my sort of Seinfeldian tendencies of the past, (laughs) where there was that whole episode about man hands and Jerry was just so judgmental about the people he was dating on that TV series. But I sometimes will laugh at myself because of my own idealistic, perfectionistic Seinfeldian tendencies of just picking things out that it's just like, ah, that's not going to work for me. And I suppose in this regard, I wanted to try it differently, I suppose, even though to your point, Shannon, having someone who takes care of themselves, who takes their health seriously, I suppose, has a perspective of wanting to put things in their body or not do things that are directly damaging to them. I don't know. I think in some cases, to Whitney's point, maybe in the past, I have not given certain people a chance and been way too idealistic and just been like, nah, it's not going to work. So I guess I'm curious, you know, how does perfectionism or idealism play of like people say, I'm looking for my ideal mate, my ideal man, my ideal partner. When you work with women and they say, I'm looking for their ideal man, can that also get too perfectionistic and rigid? And how do we know that line of, I don't know, what we're willing to overlook and the the core values that we are definitely not willing to budge from? Or when we might be sabotaging our chance at a good relationship because we're always finding a problem within somebody, you know, like, I guess that is a great question, Jason. And to continue to add on to it is when do you even know, like, what is about perfectionism and idealism versus sabotage, you know, or are they the same thing in a relationship? When do you, how, how far do you go with what you want? And when do you take a step back to examine it and saying, am I just trying to protect myself from intimacy or avoid intimacy or Is this the way that I sabotage myself from ever being in a close relationship? So perfectionism is absolutely can be self-sabotage. And a lot of people think that perfectionism comes from fear of, you know, making a mistake, but more often it's fear of not being accepted, fear of being judged. And I often say, Done is better than perfect. That's my belief as an entrepreneur myself. Like, it's very easy to get into your head and think, oh gosh, I can't do this if it's not exactly right. You know, what are people going to say? What are people going to think if I make a mistake? Perfectionism is absolutely sabotage. And having those overly rigid boundaries is a form of self sabotage because it's funny because I'm working with a client right now who has some boundary issues. And she's, you know, trying to work through some relationship patterns that haven't served her. And one of the things she said to me, and it was, I mean, it's kind of sad, but I hear a lot was that like, when she's in good relationships, she's kind of always waiting for the other shoe to fall, right? Like she's constantly, she almost wants the relationship to go sideways or to go bad, because then at least she knows what she's dealing with. And she doesn't isn't going to get her hopes up or or be surprised by something going wrong. And when it doesn't inherently happen, like you know, you know, maybe she's dating a guy that's not a total jerk, then she ends up doing things that 
kind of sabotage the relationship. Like she ends up doing it, not because she doesn't want a relationship, but because she feels safer when it's kind of blowing up because then there's like no disappointment around the relationship not being what you want. And I think you can argue the same is true when you're overly crazy expectations for a partner like if you create a person that doesn't exist right like they're perfect in all ways you're safe because no one's ever going to meet that ideal so you never have to completely open yourself up to the possibility of heartbreak well i want to talk about on that note shannon you know one thing that i suppose i find slightly irksome and i've had to look at why i find this irksome is how many i suppose I don't know, relationship quote experts or gurus for lack of a better term, whatever people on social media talking about things or seeing people like lists are a big thing. We've talked about this on the podcast before of people are like, you got to write down all the qualities and aspects and, and things you want in a partner and don't compromise. Don't you compromise because I waited and I waited 45 years and I didn't budge from my list. And then I finally found him And now it's happily ever after because I didn't compromise. And I see a lot of these kind of messages of write the list, be very specific, don't compromise and be patient. And I'm curious how you feel about that. And if you've seen similar things, because there's something about it that just irks me. And I'm trying to figure out why it's so irksome, but that's not the question. I'm curious if you've seen those type of things and this whole list writing thing and people being very adamant about don't you dare compromise, wait for him, wait for the right guy. Yeah, I hate everything you just said. (laughs) (laughs) As a, as someone who is both a therapist and quote unquote a relationship expert, I hate that. I think that that is ridiculous. I think that that sets the tone for like this impossible dream. And don't get me wrong, is there a perfect person out there for you? Sure. Like they're perfect because they're perfect for you, not because they're perfect. So And I come from this, not only someone who has lots of training, like clinical training, but also I've been happily married for 25 years. And is my husband perfect? Oh my God, no. Am I? Absolutely not. But he's perfect for me. And I do think to some degree that we have to think about like what our core values are, because I'll be really vulnerable here. I share my story pretty frequently because I think it's important for women to hear it. I myself had some trauma in my background. My parents split up when I was pretty young and my dad just like didn't want to be a parent. So he took off. Then my mom just dated one terrible, violent man after another. Like it was chaos and pain and just really awful for several years. And I moved out like literally like the second I turned 18 but not before I was sexually assaulted by one of her boyfriends. So I had certain values. So when I first started really dating, I was a hot mess express because I had no good role models for relationship. And the only way I knew love should look was chaotic and painful. And it took me a lot of time to work through that. And so I did have a few core values. Like when I met my husband, I knew number one, I did not want to be in a relationship with someone who used alcohol with any regularity because most of the guys that used to beat the crap out of me when they dated my mom were drunks. So I knew that I didn't want a man who used a lot of alcohol. 
that was a deal breaker for me. Body boundaries were a deal breaker for me. I did not want to date a man who was going to push me physically in a way that I wasn't comfortable with. Like intimacy had to be on my terms because I had experienced the ultimate violation, right? So I needed to feel in control of how intimacy happened to me. So that was for me a deal breaker. And the final deal breaker for me was that I really, I never wanted my own children to end up being abandoned by their dad. So I wanted somebody who really valued family. That was my list. Not terribly long, and I don't think super unreasonable. And I don't think it's wrong to have a list like that that reflects what we absolutely have to have to feel safe and to be mentally and emotionally healthy in a relationship. But this idea that you're going to like have this 15 item list of this, you know, Adonis that you're going to create in your mind and then you're going to manifest him from the universe. And damn it, if it takes 45 years, it takes 45 years. Like, I just think that's ridiculous. And it sets false expectations up for people. And I just, I really, I hate that kind of advice. I don't think it helps women or anybody really at all. Sorry, soapbox over. (laughs) No, it was phenomenal. And I just, I want to acknowledge you and thank you for such a vulnerable share sharing your story and, and also your perspective on this kind of relationship advice. It's interesting to me also how, I suppose, life stages or stages of development kind of play into this. And, and what comes up for me is some of the work I was introduced to years ago from Alison Armstrong and the stages of development that a man goes through. And it was such an eye opener for me in terms of, you know, where I was at versus a knight versus a prince versus a king. And the person I was dating at the time when I was introduced to Alison Armstrong's work, she really wanted to be with a king. And I think I was in my really early 30s at that point. And one of the biggest struggles that I remember going through in that relationship was I was trying really hard to embody kingship and be in that role of groundedness and success and maturity. But I realized I just wasn't there. And I was trying to put on a persona or a level of development I wasn't ready for. And I'm curious if you deal with Allison's sort of perspectives or any kind of offshoots of that and how sort of the life stage of experience and maturity and where a person's at fits into the compatibility factor when, say, one of your clients, a woman, is looking for a relationship with a man. How does that, how does that work into sort of your lexicon of your work, if at all? You know, I don't like to generalize too much. I think up to a certain stage, it's kind of an accepted idea that women tend to mature a little more quickly than men. And I was pretty young when I met him. And my husband is four, almost five years older than I am. So that actually really, for me, worked because I really needed that level of a little bit more maturity. I needed, I mean, so I met my husband when I was 19 and most 19 year old guys are, I don't know, like not to be rude, but like a hard on just running around, right? Like, and (laughs) (laughs) sorry, that's not Jason. It's not a dig at men, but come on. I think we all know at 19, the testosterone is pumping and a stiff wind will, you know, (laughs) cause a reaction. (laughs) 
I won't deny that I was also in that kind of mindset at 19. So accurate. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So another 19-year-old would not have been a good fit for me because of my trauma. Like, not that I'm saying like 19-year-olds are rapists, but just like the fact that there maybe would have been a little bit more pressure towards intimacy just because that's kind of the developmental stage that a 19-year-old male is in. And so the fact that my husband had, although to be fair, not that 24, I, I think is that much different, 23, 24, but he was a little more grounded and I was pretty open with him pretty well. I, he saw some of the domestic violence stuff that because my mom was still experiencing it when I met my husband, but, and I was pretty open with him about my sexual trauma. And so, you know, he had the ability to give me the space that I really needed at that point. So I do think there's something to be said for just being, you know, we all have to grow and mature and we all do it at different speeds. And like I matured really young because my life experience was really difficult. So that was another reason why I really needed somebody a little bit older than me to be able to match me. So I don't like to speak in general terms, although I know I did just generalize all 19 year old boys. But in general, I think that, yes, you have to consider for sure, like, what developmental stages. I think that, you know, expecting most 22-year-olds to want to settle down, like, that's not realistic. So you have to kind of be conscious of, like, the level of maturity someone's in when you think about what your expectations from a relationship are. This also reminds me of another author I wanted to bring up and hear your perspectives on, Shannon, is uh, I think her her name is pronounced Lori Gottlieb. Is that right? And she has a book about, it's something about like the case for Mr. Good Enough, right? And she's also a therapist. And I read that book and felt it, found it very confronting. <laughs> I think she's an amazing author, but I really felt torn about her point, which was that, oh, it's called Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. And she also wrote another book that I loved called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which was less confronting for me. But that Marry Him book, I was like, whoa. <laughs> and she was pointing out how a lot of women are looking for this perfect man. Maybe we should just be with somebody who's good enough. And I felt like, okay, that makes sense to me. But then also this pressure of, well, just what if I'm not happy with Mr. Good Enough? You know what I mean? It was just really interesting to to notice my reactions around it. And I started to question whether or not I wanted to get married and what I wanted in a partner and also brought up this fear of as a woman, you're getting older and the, the clock's ticking if you want to have kids. And, and this book was pointing out all this data about how all the good men are taken by a certain age. And even though it's very modern, it's not necessarily meant to like scare women or pressure them. But for me, though, it was a little bit of pressure and feeling like, oh, well, if I haven't found someone by now, will I ever? And are all the good men taken or do I just have to wait till they're divorced and then date them? And a lot of these conversations come up with my friends who haven't been married yet or haven't found someone that they're happy with. And that big question, should you settle and is good enough good enough for you? That's an interesting idea. And I don't really like that either. <laughs> Deciding today, I don't like what most of the experts say. But 
because you know i have a very good friend who is actually older than me she maybe 50 this year and she met her mr perfect i mean he's a great guy at 48 like the idea that like i get the biological clock ticking but i don't necessarily think that at a certain point all the good guys are gone i do think that there's something to be said for having realistic expectations because i do think that we tend to think and i think this comes a little bit from i mean even from like disney you know the princesses and the love stories and watching movies and we have this really romantic idea about like what finding your person should be like right it's like birds sing and i don't know woodland creatures come and do your housework and you know life is great <laughs> i'm still waiting i'm married to my prince charming and i have yet to have any woodland creatures show up here and clean my house I'm pretty pissed at Disney about that false advertising. But yes, you know, I think that we have some kind of skewed ideas about what is a good relationship. So I have a feeling I've not read the Marry Him book, but now now I'm going to because I'm curious. But yeah, I think that there's some middle, there's a happy medium here between like having these expectations or these ideals that are impossible for a person to meet and settling for like the first person that pays you any attention. Like there's got to be like a happy medium. And that's what I work with my clients to kind of figure that out. Like what are the real deal breakers and what are the things maybe you can give a little on these and you're still going to be really happy. Yeah. It's the whole media influence thing is so fascinating because I wonder how many great relationships have been, or potentially great relationships, have been derailed because they didn't meet the idea of what we've been conditioned to believe. And and I love that you hit that note, Shannon, of from childhood, right? You know, the Prince and the Prince Charming archetype and what we hear in music. And, you know, I grew up in Detroit and as much as I love Motown music, a lot, not all, but a lot of those songs kind of cast this idealized version of romantic relationship. And it's almost like, there's a part of us that it's not a necessity. I mean, one could go through one's life just thinking that that's how it ought to be. But it's almost like we have to spend time as adults, if we become aware of it, deprogramming ourselves and deconditioning our mind to expect that's what it's going to be like. Do you find that with the women and the clients you work with that there's a level of like, okay, we got to deprogram your expectations a little bit based on what you've been imprinted from childhood onward through the media. Is that something that comes up? Yes and no. So yes, in that there's definitely some deprogramming, but a lot of the work that I personally do is almost to the other extreme where it is deprogramming messages that they've gotten from their family of origin about what a healthy relationship looks like, because they usually have some pretty self-limiting ideas about like what their value is and what they can expect from a partner. And a lot of that comes from, you know, either watching their moms accept kind of cruddy treatment in relationships. Yeah. So, so I actually see the other extreme where I do tend to see the media influence is 
that idea that relationships like always have high highs and low lows because like that's what we see like in a lot of like romantic comedies and things like that you know where it's all very intense and roller coaster like and so i think that we kind of bring that idea in that that that's healthy that breakup makeup all of that kind of craziness is part of the normal relationship cycle and it's it's really actually not there doesn't have to be chaos in a relationship for it to be a meaningful deep passionate relationship i mean we've romanticized romeo and juliet and let's be real shakespeare wrote that as a satire like that was supposed to be a joke like making fun of young love and we now teach it in schools as a you know a romantic story so i just feel like the messages are just all over the place and they're not necessarily good messages and i think that's why your work is so important because it's incredibly confusing you know like Gosh, the amount of time that I've spent talking with other people about relationships, it's taken up so much and actually kind of reminds me of on a different topic, but similar in this sense. I read this wonderful book called Beauty Sick that was about the beauty industry and perceptions around our bodies and our appearances. And one of the biggest points that that book makes is If women spent less time being concerned with their appearance, it would free them up to have so much more energy and time for more important things. And I sometimes wonder that with relationships, too. It's like many of us are spending our whole lives trying to figure this stuff out. We spend a lot of literal time and money and effort and energy, all of these things that we are putting out there in an attempt to find the right person or to figure out that we're with the wrong person, you know? And I think that it can be a great pursuit. It's not necessarily a waste of time. That's not my point. It's just that to come back to what you were saying about how the media confuses us or puts out these wrong messages or sets us up for these expectations, that is actually in a way wasting our time. We're wasting our time watching this content in some way, even though entertainment is wonderful, but it takes a lot of our time to focus on it. But then the messaging that we get from that entertainment that we just spend all our time on leads to us wasting even more time because then we have to like convince our brains that what we saw isn't real or isn't based in reality. And some of us go our whole lives believing the things that we see in the media that aren't even true. And like the amount of time I've spent studying psychology and personal development and going to therapy and, you know, all of this work that I do is so much time and effort. And I kind of wonder, like, what if we were just taught a lot of these basic things from the get go and how much it could save us in terms of time, energy, money and trauma as well? You know, when we look at the traumatic things that happen in our lives and all of us having our relative experiences there. I often wonder, like, wow, how did that even happen? Like, why did this person do this thing to me? Or why did I do this thing to somebody else? Or how did I get in this situation? Not from a place of self-blame or trying to control or change things, but more like, how could we prevent this from happening to other people? And I think so many of us are just kind of lost in a lot of ways and uneducated or confused. And so... 
the media really does need to take more responsibility for the messaging it puts out. But it's so tempting to watch these romantic movies because they're satisfying to our desires for watching entertainment. You know, like as you were talking, Shannon, I was thinking about this show I saw on HBO Max recently. It's called Love Life with Anna Kendrick. And it was very enjoyable. It reminded me of Girls and Sex and the City. But I was also thinking about your point. The whole show was based on like these highlights, like the highlights and lowlights of her dating life. And so it didn't really give me much. It was just pure entertainment. And maybe on some subtle level, it was reinforcing those ideas that you're discussing of like relationships need to be full of highs and lows. And what about all those in-between points that these shows don't really even document? We kind of forget them until we're actually in those relationships. And then maybe we're in that relationship thinking something's wrong with it because it's not swinging from high to low all the time. So it's fascinating to me. And I don't know if it's ever going to change. Do you, Shannon? Do you think like (laughs) this is just the way that we're at? We're just going to spend our lives feeling confused about uh, relationship dynamics? Yeah. Well, and it's funny, like I'm listening to you say, I'm like, oh my God, yes. And let's not even talk about the unreasonable beauty standards that, you know, the media has basically forced down our throat and beauty standards that literally no human being can achieve because they're graded by Photoshop, which is just one more reason why women go into these relationships believing that they're not enough because they don't look like the woman in the magazine who's been airbrushed and thinned out and made perfect. And no, I unfortunately, I don't think it's going to go away. I think this is the norm now in our society, which is why I think it's so important. Like I have a daughter and I think it's so important the messages that we pass on to our children and also limiting how much we allow our kids to consume that kind of thing or even social media. I actually had someone literally in the last week say to me something about like, I just don't understand all my friends are in these relationships and I see them, they're traveling and they're doing this and they're doing that. And it's amazing. And why can't I have that? And I'm like, are you getting that from their like social media, like their Instagram or their Facebook? Because that's a highlight reel friend. Like that's not real life. People aren't putting their whole life on social media, they're putting their highlight reel on. And if you are allowing someone else's highlight reel to make you feel less than like, that's also problematic because, you know, kids are getting access to social media younger and and younger. And so they're seeing people's highlight reel and thinking like, that's the whole picture. And that just skews our perception even further, which is why we need people to be responsible and to be doing our best to counter these messages. That's why I do the work that I do, because I just really want to empower women to see beyond that, to see that they have value. It's not dictated by what the current beauty standards are or by what their experiences were growing up or any of that, that they have value, that they are unique, amazing creatures that deserve to be loved and respected and treated the way that they want to be treated. So I just think that we all have to, you know, do our best 
to be a better example than what the media is is doing. I want to jump into the subject of online dating really quick. Well, maybe not really quick. Maybe we can all pontificate on it. Whitney and I have certainly had a, a lot of experience with online dating over the years. And one thing I've noticed is almost, I don't know if I would call it the opposite side of what we're discussing, Shannon, where we're talking about throughout this episode, women that maybe have a sense of lacking perception of value or self-worth, and then they gravitate toward men that don't respect or honor them. One thing I've noticed kind of on the on the dating roller coaster is maybe the other side of the coin where there's this, I don't want to make it an LA thing. Whitney and I are in Los Angeles. We've talked to friends in other cities and it seems to be kind of a, I don't know, endemic to maybe the online dating world is that there's an upgrade culture. It's like, yeah, you know what? I know if he's not like exactly right for me, I can just keep swiping and I'll find another dude like in two days. And what I've noticed is is it almost engenders this in some people. I don't know if it's an egoic sort of perspective, but like it's almost like shopping for a human in the sense that if this person doesn't exactly meet all of my needs, desires, wants, and fantasies, we can just kick he or she to the curb and just keep swiping. And I'm curious what well, for both of you, you know, and Whitney, you and I have talked about this in previous episodes, but I think it's important to get all our perspectives on on sort of this upgrade culture and this sort of like I perceive online dating as almost Amazon for humans. The reason I got off online dating is I felt started to feel icky inside because I felt like I was swiping for a human, almost like I'm swiping for oven mitts on Amazon. I'm curious about the upgrade culture and maybe people not giving certain people a chance because, quote, something better is right around the corner or right around the next frame. So what are your thoughts and feelings on that? Well, I also think it's important to acknowledge the other side of it, because what comes up for me is, especially when I was online dating, I don't know if I was consciously looking to upgrade all the time, but I definitely felt like some men were trying to upgrade from me. So for example, I would match with somebody and never hear from him. Or like that's so common on these apps. Or you say hello, they never write back. Or maybe you talk a little bit and then they completely ghost you. I've had that numerous times on dating apps where like, you know, you start a conversation with somebody and suddenly they disappear and you wonder, did they just move on to somebody else? Like was I on a list of like a bunch of other women that they were interested in? And then if you go on a date, you wonder that. Or maybe you feel rejected and you're thinking, is there anything wrong with me? Or is it that someone better came along and they're comparing me to somebody else? And that's really tough. I think especially for anyone like myself who's susceptible to not feeling good enough and who often falls prey to the comparison trap, online dating was incredibly tough because I think in my head, I started to just assume that men were constantly comparing me to other women and just to trying to determine, was I the best bet for them or did they have someone else lined up? And that's an awful feeling. You know, I'm dating myself here, but I don't care. I am so grateful that I met my husband before online dating really <laughs> was a thing, but I experienced it vicariously, unfortunately, through friends and family and clients and I think that you guys both make a good point because, well, number one, I feel like these apps depersonalize 
the experience, right? Like it's easy to forget that the other person on the other end of the swipe is a like a living, breathing human being that has feelings. And so like this like ghosting culture, I think comes from that. The, the like bad behavior online, both from men and women. Like, I don't want to point a finger at one gender because see, I've seen and heard stories from both sides of the aisle. And I think that just like with like cyberbullying, like there's like this feeling of being safe, right? Because you're doing a lot of this from behind a screen. So behaving badly just in general becomes easier and when you take the human out of the equation when you are able to kind of pretend that it's not a human being that has feelings and fears and insecurities and hopes and dreams on the other end of the screen it becomes very easy to behave badly to treat them poorly, to kind of, as you had said, Jason, like, you know, upgrade to a better set of oven mitts on Amazon or whatever, right? Like, I think that's the problem is that it's very easy to forget that we're actually dealing with real people and people that can have an emotional reaction to the way someone treats them through these apps. So I think that's where the problem really comes from is that being able to disconnect it's a lot harder to to say something awful, right? To someone when you're looking them in the eyes, hopefully, if you're not a a sociopath, like, you know, it's not so easy to do it when you, you know, have an actual connection with a human being and the apps kind of take the connection away a little bit. The thing I'm super curious about is what the world of say post COVID dating and romance and relationship mechanics are going to look like, you know, whenever there's got to be a better word than normal, whatever the next evolution of human civilization is going to be once we're through all of this. I'm so curious, you know, the dynamics of not only the physical interaction, because I joke with some friends that almost like talking about COVID tests right now is almost like we've talked about STD tests. Like, when did you get tested? Are you good? Are you clean? Cool. It's almost like now there's going to be the STD conversation and the COVID conversation and, you know, God knows what else. But it seems to me that those who are looking for romance or connection right now due to physical distancing, due to whatever a person's individual belief system is, it's almost as if right now the default is online dating because the mechanisms through which we would go and meet someone, you know, a bar, a yoga class, a festival, actually asking someone out on a physical date. Those options are either non-existent or extremely limited. And it makes me curious just what those dynamics are going to look like for human society moving forward. And it seems very precarious and unknown at this point. Yeah, I hear that. It's funny because I hear a lot from like my clients that are not in relationships, this kind of low-level anxiety because you know they already have some insecurities. And then you add in online dating, which is at least at the surface, let, like, let's be real, even if you write an amazing, like bio on your plenty of fish profile or whatever, like people are swiping based off of that, like second, like, oh, she's hot, or he's hot, or eh, not so much. So it's, 
for sure difficult, especially if you have some self-esteem stuff already kind of happening in your world. And, you know, so there's already the self-esteem stuff. And then there's that anxiety around like, oh God, like, do I have to do this online? What is that going to look like? And then like, let's sprinkle in a little extra anxiety around like COVID stuff. Like, should you actually, I do know a few people that are doing quote unquote dates, like, you know, they're going for walks or things like that. You know, you're running into, because in our country, we're so divided about like, how serious is COVID? What are the safety measures you should be taking? Is it all a conspiracy? There's so many different beliefs about COVID just in general in our country. So then there's like that, you know, like I had a a client who went on a walking date outside with somebody and he just kept wanting to like put his arm around her and things like that. And I expressed uncomfortable I am right now with COVID and having just met him and all of that. And so then there's like this other layer of like, now we're going to have to establish more boundary setting around like COVID type issues. Yeah, I think like who knows at this point, I just don't think that like we have any clue what post COVID life is, is going to be like, or even when we're going to get to something truly post COVID. But I just think it just makes a hard situation for the people that struggle with this anyway. It just makes it that much. There's just that much more to unpack and to manage for them. What are some general ways? And I know this is a very nuanced question, but it's something that has been brought up a lot recently in conversation on the podcast with Whitney and I is the topic of anxiety and working through anxiety. And I'm curious, Shannon, with your perspective as a clinician and a therapist, you know, what are some ways, techniques, methodologies that you encourage people to take a look at their anxieties and work through it when they're in the depth of it? You know, it's kind of a scary thing sometimes depending on you know, where that anxiety goes or where it stems from. So are there any kind of generalized tips? I know there's probably a lot of nuances of the sources of anxiety for people, but what are some ways you would suggest tackling it? Or what are some ways that you help your clients through it? So I think the thing to to really remember when we think about anxiety, anxiety typically is rooted in some type of irrational fear. So, and I don't mean that people being nervous around COVID is irrational because of course, like COVID is serious. That's not what I mean. But typically when someone experiences like actual severe anxiety, it's like they've taken what would be like a normal kind of fear and it's become kind of an extreme idea in their head, like how things are going to go wrong. Like it's kind of like, we call it catastrophic thinking. So they don't necessarily have the ability to recognize in the moment that maybe some of those fears are a little bit irrational. So when I work with clients in therapy around this, people that truly have anxiety, one of the first things we do, well, first we establish a coping skill, one or two coping skills that work well for them. So one that almost universally works well for people is like deep breathing, or we call it box breathing or or four square breathing. And it's like, you can Google it. It's very simple, just a type of deep breathing that kind of just slows your whole system down. Because when we get anxious, it's we go into fight or flight, and there's like chemicals that get dumped in the body that make your heart rate 
kind of go up and that all feeds the anxiety cycle. So like doing that kind of breathing just slows things down a little bit and gives you some space to think about it. And then typically what I challenge people to do and what usually works very well is to think about like, what is the fear? Like what is causing that response? So like, I guess if it would be like a COVID situation, maybe the fear is that you're going to get COVID and you're going to end up in the hospital on a ventilator and you're going to die, right? Because like, that's the worst case scenario for COVID, right? That you're going to actually die from it. And it's not completely unreasonable. But then the rational part of it is like, okay, how old am I? Am I fairly healthy? Like, if I were to get COVID, how likely is it that I'm going to have some kind of severe response where I end up on a ventilator and I die? Like, so it's literally dismantling the fear by using, by fact checking, if you will. Like, I had a client that had this weird fear of falling down in front of people, which sounds, I know, very bizarre, but they didn't like crowds because they had this fear that they were going to fall in front of everybody and that everybody was going to see them and like point and laugh and it was going to be terrible, right? So like literally the work looked a little bit like, okay, well, when's the last time you fell in front of somebody, like anybody, let alone a big crowd? And they were like, well, I've never done it. And I was like, and you're what, 29? Yeah. And you've never fallen in a crowd? Nope. Okay, so what are the odds that you're just going to like face plant in front of a crowd? Like not probably very high. You've managed to make it 29 years and never have that happen, right? So and then just picking it apart like that. And okay, if you fell in the middle of a concert and there's 10,000 people, what are the odds all 10,000 people are going to see you point and laugh? And so using some rational thought and some fact checking, if you will, you kind of dismantle the fear. And in that COVID example, if the person actually is in a high risk group of actually getting COVID and dying, then, okay, so then that's not actually just anxiety. That's actually a reasonable fear. So then we would talk about, okay, well, then how do we manage risk? So maybe we don't go on physical dates right now. We manage your risks in other ways and problem solve around that. So That's kind of how we work through anxiety with clients is, you know, give them a coping skill and then helping them talk through whether their fears are actually realistic or not. That's always so interesting to hear things like that example, because as you were saying, it might sound kind of silly to some of us, but to that person, it was causing them a lot of fear and anxiousness. And I'm always fascinated by that. And when I can have that moment of stepping outside of myself, either just through my own self-awareness or through the support of a therapist or a coach. It really is incredible how much of a difference it makes when you walk through those scenarios. And it's not even about saying like, this is a silly thought that you're having. Like It's about acknowledging it. And then for me, it's helpful to walk through it and realize like maybe it's not as bad as it feels. And it's so interesting how the brain works because our brain can simultaneously be fearful of something. And then like once we talk ourselves through it, no longer feel fearful. And so it's like the same brain in the same scenario, but through the process of talking it through, 
we can come to a completely different feeling and thought process about it. And it's just really amazing because what you just described was very helpful and simultaneously very simple. And I bet that a lot of other people are feeling that same relief that I felt just thinking about that. (laughs) You know, your point about falling in front of a crowd of people at a concert, you know, it's a very specific thing. And I immediately thought, Jason, of Red Rocks, which is one of the last concerts that we went to. And a year ago, and I was thinking like, what would happen if I had tripped and fallen <laughs> at Red Rocks, you know, and like this amphitheater outside in front of people. And like, I probably would have felt embarrassed. But then Shannon, when you shared, like, what are the chances that everybody in the audience would notice it and then laugh at it and respond to it in that way? And it also reminds me of what it's like for me with a fear of straight up criticism online, whether it's through the podcast or social media or through my YouTube channels and how much that's affected me to the point where I'm often afraid to share content online. And often it's because a few people have said critical, mean, rude, troll, whatever type of comments And yet there's a big audience of people that didn't even notice those things or didn't react that way or didn't have that same response that they wrote out, you know, but yet I'm so focused on that person, similar to if I were to trip and fall at a concert venue and one person pointed and laughed at me, that would matter more than this whole crowd of people that didn't even notice or maybe that one person that helped me out that came over and said, are you okay? I would still probably be focused on the person that laughed at me because I think a lot of our brains have that tendency. And it's so interesting. It's like a negative bias. Well, and our brain, its only real job is to keep us alive, right? So our brain does things specifically to keep us alive, to keep us safe, to keep us in community because like, Back when we were, you know, drawing on cave walls, we needed community to survive, right? If you got shunned by the community and like got kicked out, a saber-toothed tiger could come and eat you or whatever. So there's a part of our brain that kind of is geared towards not wanting any kind of negative response to us because it feels like there's danger in that. So it's something that you know, we absolutely can work through. And it helps to understand that it's just kind of a knee jerk response from our like lizard brain, back when it had to do a really good job of keeping us as part of the community so that we could survive. Yeah, it goes back to that part about maybe deprogramming ourselves or working through these old outdated belief systems, some of them are deeply hardwired in our neurobiology. And It's almost like one of the practices that I try to employ is, you talked about breathing, Shannon, is is stopping myself when I feel like I'm spinning out and I'm experiencing a moment of anxiety or maybe in some cases I've had a couple panic attacks in my life, asking myself what's real here. You know, in the moment, is there any real danger? Is there any real threat? Is there anything that is commanding a response in my body that is actual fight or flight? Or is it my mind grasping on the illusion of a future possibility that doesn't exist yet or a past regret and using that to try and color my reality in the present moment? And most of the time when I really take inventory of what's happening in the present moment, 
all is well. You know, it's like, okay, I have a roof over my head. I have food in my fridge. I'm safe in this moment. I'm breathing. I'm still. I'm speaking. Or if I'm in the car in LA traffic, you know, my hands are on the steering wheel. I'm safe in the car right now. All is well. I have water. I have a a granola bar. Whatever the case may be, I find that one of the things is just taking inventory of what's actually happening in the present moment and how beneficial that is. And I'm curious, you know, with your work in therapy, you know, what role does, I guess, presence practice or mindfulness or those kind of techniques, how do those play a role at all in what you teach others? Absolutely. And what you were just describing, we, I mean, we have fancy names for things, you know, we like to give things fancy names, but we really talk about grounding. That's another really useful tool when someone is really, really anxious or even having a panic attack. And that is absolutely being aware. We talk about like being aware of like five things that you can see, four things that you can touch, three things that you can hear. So you're like really grounding into in that moment, just kind of sensory, like safe things so that you can kind of take yourself out of either that forward thought or that kind of rear view thought that is has got you really anxious. And, you know, mindfulness, it all definitely goes hand in hand. Mindfulness just in general is a really useful practice. And it's, I mean, it's not something that's complicated at all. It's really just being present in the moment and allowing yourself to acknowledge whatever it is that you're feeling without judgment. If it is that you're feeling fearful, because, you know, we tend to do this thing, this like, this loop, this like self-talking loop of negativity where we have something negative happen or we think something negative and then we have a response to that, which then feeds more negative thought, which then creates more negative emotion. And it really creates this like cycle and and it's not particularly useful. It doesn't really help people at all. So being mindful is it's being aware of that initial thought, but without the judgment. Like people that have anxiety tend to be really hard on themselves because of the anxiety. So like if they're feeling anxious, then they're like, oh, and this is, I'm so stupid, you know, and then they start doing that thing where they start telling themselves bad things about themselves, which just then almost creates this like negativity spiral. And it's not particularly helpful in controlling those emotions. So being mindful is just being like, okay, in this moment, I feel uncomfortable. I'm being aware of my heart beating a little bit faster. Like I'm feeling nervous. That's not really bad or good. It just is. And so by taking away the judgment, it stops the spiral before it can even really start. Yeah, that's super useful. It's not only managing our mental state before we spiral out into anxiety or maybe even something you know worse like a panic attack per se, but I think it engenders a lot of self-compassion. And you said something, Shannon, that was like a ding, ding, ding moment for me. You've had a lot of ding, ding, ding moments. This one in particular was how people with anxiety tend to be hard on themselves. And I know that for me, when I have a lot of anxiety or I'm struggling sometimes with my mental health, I beat myself up in the sense of like, you ought not feel this way. You've already done so much work. You've already done so much therapy. You've years and years working on this. Why are you feeling this way? It's almost like an overly stern parent 
not allowing the experience to happen inside of me, right? And so the self-compassion, I think, is such a huge part of this in the not enoughness we've talked about, in the anxiety we're feeling, the comparison trap, feeling like we ought not to experience these negative emotions. And it's hard, right? Because I think for a lot of us, self-love and self-compassion, if we didn't grow up in an environment where I suppose those things were discussed or encouraged or we didn't have a positive self-identity, it can be really challenging to learn how to love ourselves, right? I mean, it seems like such on paper, such a simple thing like, oh, just love yourself. But I've certainly found that having self-compassion and self-love is, it's just an ongoing journey. It's not like, to me, it seems like there's not a destination where it's like, I love myself fully now. It seems like there's always things that come up that are like, ooh, that needs more love. That needs more compassion. That needs more understanding. I need to give a voice to that. I don't know. I just, I feel like I've given up like self-love as a destination, but more as a process. Yeah. I don't think we ever finish that journey. I don't think we ever should finish that journey, really. I think we always continue to grow. And I tell people a lot because we're always our own worst critic, right? That I think that's pretty common to at some points in our life to have that kind of that dialogue with ourselves where we're just not being super kind. And I challenge people when they tell me something about themselves that's, you know, particularly awful that they believe about themselves or that they tell themselves, you know, I'll ask them, would you ever say that to someone else? Like, would you ever feel comfortable saying, you know, those words to someone else, you know, you're stupid, or you can't get anything right, or you don't deserve any better. Like, can you imagine, you know, I'll tell them, like, close your eyes, I want you to actually imagine saying that to somebody else. And most of the people I work with, I mean, are nice, are good people. They say, of course not, of course, I would never say that to someone else. So then why is it okay to say it to yourself? Like, why is it okay to treat yourself so badly, to give yourself those types of messages if you would never in a million years speak those words to somebody else. Not even just self-love it. You really, when you said self-compassion, I was like, yes, right there. Choosing every day to be kind to ourselves, to cut ourselves some slack for not being perfect because we are imperfect beings, all of us. And that's really where our beauty lies is in our imperfections, because it's what makes us unique from one another. And just being able to lean into that, and hopefully one day being able to lean into someone else's imperfections, because you love them, and because they are imperfectly perfect for you. So powerful. It is so powerful. And I also love words like acceptance, compassion. And I think the more that we can start with that, the easier it becomes to be in these dynamics. And just discussing this with you today, Shannon, has been so enlightening. And also just, I think it brings me more peace around these subject matters. And I hope it has for the listener as well, because sometimes this can all feel so stressful. It can feel, as I said, confusing, overwhelming, and scary. A lot of us tie so much of our self-worth into what are other people think of us, our dynamics with other people, whether it's romantic or friendships or family relations, that tends to be one of the biggest sources of stress. And things like, are we going to find somebody in time? Or are we going to be lonely for the rest of our lives? <laughs> like, 
we're so afraid of those things. And just to be able to discuss them with you and hear your perspective. And I feel just very comforted. (laughs) You know, like this show is about getting uncomfortable, but I'm really grateful for times when I end up feeling more comfortable at the end of a conversation like this one. How about you, Jason? Yeah, I feel like (laughs) it would be really confusing to the listener if we titled this episode, This Might Get Comfortable. And then they see and go, wait, wait a second. I thought I was listening to This Might Get Uncomfortable. But I certainly feel, yeah, Shannon, your perspective was just so sagacious and grounded and calm and loving and open. And and you just brought so much wisdom and love to this episode. We can't thank you enough. It was wonderful. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. This is my heart, really. I have a heart for this. So I really appreciate having this conversation with you guys today. Yeah, we feel it. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. You can definitely tell that this is part of your purpose and your heart's calling. And it's a beautiful thing too, Shannon, when we get to talk with people who are living out something that they really believe in and they're really finding ways to serve the world through their purpose. And that's just incredibly inspiring to me. I appreciate that so much. I really do, you guys. And I'm glad you guys feel good today. I'm glad this did not get uncomfortable. I'm glad it got comfortable. (laughs) It was a good boost for the afternoon, that's for sure. And for the dear listener, for all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode today, including Shannon's website, which is shannoncorn.com, her Instagram page, her Facebook page, and the ways to connect with her directly to book a consultation and a session. We will have all of those in the show notes at our website, which is wellevator.com. That's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can go right to the podcast section to access the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes. And for more upcoming resources, do subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We do appreciate that. And we are going to take another deep dive on this might get uncomfortable or this might get comfortable. We can't guarantee it's going to be uncomfortable. Some episodes like this, totally comfortable. But either way, we do appreciate your listenership, your likes, your shares, your reviews. And we will be back with another episode very, very soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.